May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I saw this website the other day that had the best of all the lost and found posters. You know the kind of lost and found posters that people make and they put up on the telephone poles when they're looking for something like a lost pet or something? Well, one of them had this, it looked like it was done by a 10-year-old. It had this hand-drawn picture of a bicycle. Okay, and, and it said lost bicycle or, or missing bicycle. And, and then below, in kind of a smaller print, handwritten, here's what it read. My bike was stolen from my lawn last week. It is a one-speed bike with a skull flag and a lightning bolt on it. And sure enough, if you look up at the picture, there's this big pennant flag with a skull hand-drawn in it and a lightning bolt. And then, right below it says, the writer goes on, the lightning bolt and the flag may have been removed. <laughs> you think? And uh, this is a brand new bike. Then in big, bold type, no reward. He goes on, I don't even want this bike back. I just made these fires to tell you that I hate you, bike thief. I, I hope you ride this bike without a helmet and get hit by a monster truck. A uh, little bit of revenge there. Another one had this one, it said, missing. And then there was a, a, a box that should have, where a picture should have gone, but it was blank. And then below it said, imaginary friend Steve. Um, picture was taken three years ago. His appearance may have altered due to age. Um, if you see him, tell him Vince is sorry about the ice cream and please come home. You know, I thought it was kind of clever. There's another one that said, I did not lose anything, nor did I find anything, nor am I trying to sell anything. I just hope you are well. And then it had a little uh, uh, peace sign down at the bottom of it. I like that one. It was pretty good. But the best one. The best one had this picture of this orange cat. Okay, so you picture the orange cat, and then at the top, missing. And then below it, promise my girlfriend I'd put up posters to help find her missing cat. But if you have found this cat, and you like this cat, keep it. I hate this cat. <laughs> and then below it, probably ex-girlfriend by now, you know. <laughs> you know how it feels when you, when you lose something that's really important to you, and you're, you're just desperate to find it? You know, I'm putting up pictures of my car keys all around the neighborhood all the time. Missing keys. Please help me find them. Um, but there's something when you lose an animal or, you know, something that's really important to you. You know, you want it back. You know, you, you want Fluffy or Precious or Fido or whatever you name your... You, please, bring this back to me. I, I saw this one. Um, it was this young man who had this picture of this young man and this young woman. And, uh, you know, they're kind of sweethearts, you can tell, in the, in the, in the photograph. And then it says at the top, lost, colon, the love of my life. And then there's a little arrow pointing to her. And it says, description, the most beautiful girl in the world. And you could tell that she wasn't really lost. She was just lost to him, which made it more painful. You know, it was a different kind of loss. And the irony of the poster kind of helped you to feel, oh, you know, there is a loss that actually goes deeper than when we misplace something or when a pet runs away, St. Francis used to say this, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. I think he meant the gospel is a precious gift, and, and when it's lived out, it's provocative. When you live out the gospel in your world, it is so provocative that people ask questions like, Why in the world do you do that? Well, why do you act that way? 
Where does this generosity come from? Where does this kindness come from? Who does things like this? I mean, it's provocative in that way. So that you get a chance to give the words that should follow. Because here's the, the, the message. Preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words. Sometimes it is necessary to use words. In fact, the gospel ultimately is going to be about preaching words. See, you can lose something. And it's not like it's lost when it ran out the door or gets, you know, slips into the couch cushions. Sometimes we can lose things that are really important because we disregard them. We don't pay attention to them. We ignore it. And it's lost. And I think the gospel can be one of those things. We can lose the gospel in the church because we don't actually take care of it. We don't guard it. We begin to call things the gospel that are not the gospel. We begin to label things as gospel that really have nothing to do with the gospel. Which begs the question, well then, tell us, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? If you don't want to lose it, if you want to protect it, if you want to cherish it, if you want to secure it, you ought to know what it is. Well, it's not good manners. It's nice to have good manners. Christians should have good manners. But the gospel is not good manners. I heard one time a preacher tell young men, he, he said, you could really use the word uh, Christian and gentleman as synonyms. So be a good gentleman and you'll be a good Christian. Well, I do hope that good young men are gentlemen because Christian young men ought to be gentlemen. But being a gentleman does not make one a Christian. It's not about good manners. And the gospel is not about being nice. I mean, you know that I've said this axiom that people believe sometimes Christianity can be summed up by some as isn't it nice that we can be nice to the nice? Well, maybe, but it's not the gospel. That is not the message of the gospel. It's not the same thing as courteousness. On the other end of the spectrum, neither is the gospel about intolerance. You know, it's not the gospel to tell people, no matter how wicked they are, you're going to hell. That's not the gospel. It's not good news. There's no good news in that at all. And people who say things like that are not proclaiming the gospel, no matter how much they think they are. It's not a mercenary message. The message of the gospel isn't that God likes you and God likes things and He wants to connect you and things. <laughs> you know, We live in a world that is consumed with the accumulation of stuff. The message of the gospel is not that God wants you to have more stuff. I hope you have more stuff and I hope you share it with your pastor. But I, that's not the message of the gospel, right? None of these are. If you want to find the message of the gospel, take your bulletin with me, will you? Open it up to the New Testament lesson. The lesson from 1 Corinthians. Take your bulletin. Pull it out. The lesson, the, the New Testament lesson, Paul's letter, his first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul goes to this city in, in Greece called Corinth. It is the most licentious city in the entire world in the first century. To be called a Corinthian was a term of derision that nobody even among the pagan world wanted to be called. It was the most ungodly of all cities, the most pagan of all. And there, Paul plants this little church. 
And these people have a hard time sort of living out the, the, the gospel message. And in fact, so much of a difficult time that Paul has to write this letter to correct them. But he also encourages them. And this is at the very end of the letter. And here's what Paul says. He says, whatever you do, don't lose sight of the gospel. Whatever you do, don't lose sight of the gospel. Because here's what it is. The gospel is a message. It is a story. A narrative. And because it's a narrative, it, 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 it has to hold together. It has to hold together as a story holds together. Look at the very first verse. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you. Literally, what Paul says in his original language is, I want to remind you of the gospel that I gospeled to you. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached. And what is it? Verse 2. By which you are being saved, if you hold fast. You catch that conditional? If you hold on to this. If you hold fast, look at this, to the Word. See that singular? The Word. The message is kind of condensed into a single entity. A Word. What then is the Word of the Gospel? It is this. Two times. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, look at this, in accordance with the Scriptures. And then in the next verse, that Christ was buried and He was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. The Gospel begins this way. The Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy. That you can build your life upon this Word. That it is trustworthy. It's not always convenient. Oh, heavens knows it's not convenient. Somebody cuts you off when you're driving down the road? There are some good words you could use. They are really effective. And the gospel kind of um, tells you, no, don't do that. I mean, this, this written word, don't get back at them. A lot of other places I could give you examples. You know them, right? You know them only too well. Lawyers base their practice on the law. Physicists on mathematics and the physical universe. Philosophers on the love of wisdom. Christians base their lives on this. On the message of the gospel. This is where Christian the scriptures are trustworthy. Second thing. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. His death was not an accident of history. He didn't just not see the Romans coming. It wasn't like he got caught by surprise. Oh, you know the Romans really are bad people. No, he knew that, right? It wasn't an accident. He wasn't murdered because he he wasn't clever enough to get away. He died for the sins of the world. He was a real historical person. As real as the person sitting next to you. I almost want you to reach out and pinch them just so you can see how real they are, but don't do that. Okay, as real as you. Real human flesh. And that real human flesh died for us. You might be surprised to know this, but when I was a teenager, I was a little bit, um, well, I wasn't a priest. Let me tell you that. I wasn't born that way. And um, and so I remember this one night where um, I had read Romeo and Juliet, I think. I don't know what I had done, but there was this young lady that I wanted to try to um, to talk to. And so I went to her house and I, I, um, I threw some pebbles at her window. Turns out it wasn't her window. Um, <laughs> It was her parents' window. 
And they didn't like it that I was there, you know? I thought it was romantic. They didn't think it was romantic at all. I should have laid off the fastball, maybe. I don't know. Um, but they called the police, you know? And, um, and that broken window had to be fixed. And uh, guess who had to fix it? Who had to pay for it to get fixed? With my own sweat, uh, with my own toil, I had to pay my debt to society and to this young lady's parents' broken window. You know what? We have all committed a crime that is far greater than any young man throwing pebbles at a, at a window. We have committed a crime that cannot be paid just by working it off in community service or, or writing a check. We have alienated ourselves by our own choices from Almighty God. We have made ourselves God in His place. We have broken the first commandment and everyone that follows thereafter. We've rebelled against God. And because of that, this debt has to be paid. The gospel message is this, that Jesus Christ paid that debt for us. That the cross isn't just a sign of beauty to us. It is a reminder that every time we look at it, we know that Christ died in our place. But that's not the end of the story, is it? And the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, He was raised from the dead. Jesus was dead and then He became alive. Paul says um, that Christ was buried and that He was raised on the third day. Now listen to me. There is no credible historian... No credible historian in the world who will deny the fact that there was a man called Jesus who lived in the first century who was raised in the city of Nazareth. No credible historian anywhere. I've read a lot of them. And no credible historian anywhere who will not say that this person, Jesus, who lived in the first century was executed by the Romans for the crime of sedition. No credible historian anywhere. You do not have to be a Christian to believe that or to know that that is true. But there are different explanations as to why Jesus' friends began to say after a few days that their friend Jesus, who had been executed, had risen from the grave. Let me give you just a couple of the most popular ones. One is called the swoon theory. I call this the Princess Bride theory. If you've ever watched The Princess Bride, remember when Wesley dies and he's not all the way dead, he's just mostly dead? Okay, well, like Miracle Max, um, this is what Jesus needed. He wasn't all the way dead, he was just mostly dead. It's called the swoon theory. Here it is that Jesus was executed, he was was placed on a cross, he was beaten, um, stabbed, taken down off the cross, wrapped in bandages, and guess what? Wonder of all wonders, they didn't actually kill him. He must have been a really tough cookie. And so they wrapped him up in, in bandages and placed him in a, in a tomb, and it was like an ICU ward. And there he recovered, and he came walking out, and everybody said, wow, he had been resurrected. Only that wouldn't happen. It was impossible. That we, there are 60 or more than 60 extant tombs that are exactly like the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea in the Gospel. More than 60 of them still exist in, in uh, Israel that you could find today. The stone that covers the hole is four to five feet in diameter and more than a foot thick. It is placed on a slope, uh, like a channel, so that it runs downhill. It has to be opened by several men from the outside because it weighs between two and 3,000 pounds. If the swoon theory is true, Jesus not only would have had to wake up just a couple days later after these near-death injuries, he would have had to move a 3,000-pound stone with his fingertips uphill. Impossible. Another theory is that he was, um, 
he, he died and that his friends saw his ghost. Well, that is a possibility, I suppose, because the Jews actually had language for this. It's not the language they use for Jesus, but they actually had language for this. In, in Acts chapter 12, there's a story of, um, of Peter who's in prison. People gather in a house and they pray for him. And an angel releases Peter from the prison. He goes to the house where people are praying, he knocks on the door, and a young servant girl named Rhoda comes down. Chapter 12 of Acts, read it. A young servant girl comes down, and she answers the door. She comes to the door and says, who's there? And Peter says, it's me. And she hears his voice, recognizes it, and is so thrilled, she runs up to tell everybody without letting him in. Peter's at the front door. No, you, you, he's there. The people inside say this. It's not Peter. It must be his angel. You see, there was this belief in ancient Israel that you're, you could be spiritually resurrected. You, your spirit could come back, you know, like we have with ghosts. That's not what they say about Jesus. No one says it's his angel. No one says it's his ghost, his spirit. They say he was dead and he's alive. He had been resurrected. This language of resurrection was supposed to be used for a general resurrection. There was no belief that one person could be resurrected right in the middle, and yet that's the language they used. He's been resurrected. This is the message of the gospel. The scriptures are trustworthy. Jesus died for our sins. He died all the way dead. And the third day, He rose again from the grave. And get this. Paul says whenever this message is proclaimed, Christ Himself is present. He's present. He's present right now in this very moment. The resurrected Jesus is here. He's present with us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when you proclaim this message, it's like you should imagine Christ walking up and down through the church, going between the pews, touching people, calling them to Himself. And that's what He does today. For us. And if you hear this message, and if it, if it causes your heart to say, yes, I believe, well, that's a gift from God. Because even faith is a gift. Alleluia. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia.